Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. How are we doing? Come on, we're in Ohio, it's raining. This is our dream. How are we doing? Y'all watch The Notebook, and they're kissing in the rain, and you're like, this is beautiful. And then here it is, and you, you know, we love the rain. Amazing things happen in the rain. In fact, this is, I think, our third, is this our third year doing this, right? Um, you know, like, the other ones are, were great, but you're going to remember the time where you sat in the mud without an umbrella in the rain, and you did church in the park, and you were like, I am dedicated, I'm a Midwesterner, all right? I'm dedicated to this, regardless of the weather. Well, my name is Trey, and I get to be the pastor, I would say here, but we don't own this park. Uh, I get to be the pastor of Contrast Church, and uh, I'm just excited for this. This is a really fun time for me. Uh, we, this has a lot of, like I said, it has a lot of history to it. We, we kind of started our small beginnings as a church plant. Uh, we spent several weeks here in a row. We were just like, we're just going to meet at the park. It's nice out. We don't really have a great space, and, uh, and, and that was until we got Grace Fellowship, we met there for a while, and so this was our beginnings. So some of you are feeling extreme nostalgia. Others of you, this is maybe your first time, and we're glad you've joined us, but uh, I love it. And so I'm just thankful for, uh, man, the last year and a half, two years of, we started this during COVID, and so this was a great way to do it, um, being outside, and you could sit as far away as you wanted. Um, And so it's just, it's crazy how far we've come, just I was just thinking this morning how grateful I am for you guys. And it's crazy because, like, you know, when we started this thing, we had no idea who would show up, who would be a part of it, even the people that would move or that would would come and stay. And so it's just been really cool to see all of you guys and and even just this week being a part of this. So I want to do something um, unique today. Normally, if you've been following us for the last few weeks, we've been going through the uh, the seven churches in Revelation. I thought maybe we'd mix it up a little bit just because we're in the park. Um, and so I just want to talk about following Jesus today. I think uh, we need a reminder, honestly, all the time, but in this case today of just what it means to follow Jesus and why we do it and why it matters. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, I'd love for you to pull those out. And I'm going to give you a scripture where I want you to camp, but we're not going to be there for a little bit, but I'll give you time to get there. I would love for you to go to Luke 15. Luke 15. It's on the right side of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke 15, and I just would love for you to camp there, and we'll get there in a few minutes. That's going to be our main main focus today. But I want to start off with uh, just some basic questions. The first question I think that's pretty, pretty, um, pretty basic is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? In fact, uh, this question, you know, you might feel like you know a simple, easy answer, but there's a lot to it. In fact, there's a whole Bible full of it. Uh, that has a lot of different things to say about what it means to follow Jesus. And there's like the main priorities, but then there's a lot of things that that has implications on in your life and what that means to live out your life. And so I feel like the best verse that could just sum up what it means is a little bit earlier in Luke 9. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. Um, Jesus is, is kind of growing in his popularity, but as he's growing in his popularity, people start to just kind of want him for the wrong reasons, the healings, the fame, the popularity, whatever it may be, the change in their life circumstances that he could provide. And uh, and he says to all of them in chapter 9, verse 23, he says, if anyone wants to become my follower, 
He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it benefit a person if they gain the entire world, but they forfeit themselves or their soul? I think that pretty much sums up the, the big existential question. What does it benefit a person if they gain the entire world, but they forfeit or lose themselves or their soul? I think we talk about like the soul seems like this very abstract thing, but just to oversimplify it, it's like this core of our heart. We talk about our heart. We're not talking about our physical heart. We're talking about this idea of a soul that like there's this deeper reality in our lives and the, way, and the ways that we feel our affections and our desires that are this soul. And Jesus says, what does it gain if you gain the world, but you forfeit your soul in light of following me. So I was thinking about, I think the best way to answer this question, because it actually poses a question in the Bible, it ends with a question mark, is, is what is the blank for you? So in this instance, it says the whole world, but I think that seems a little bit like lofty. Like, I don't think any of you plan on owning the entire world, but you might plan on blank. And I have a couple different instances. For what do you benefit if you get blank but forfeit your soul? For what do you get, what do you benefit if you get wealth? but you forfeit your soul. For what do you benefit if you get status or influence, but you forfeit your soul? For what do you benefit if you get power or prominence, but you forfeit your soul? If you've heard of Solomon, he was, we'd say, one of the wisest men ever, one of the richest men ever. He had basically everything, and he writes a 13-chapter book in the Bible that a lot of people don't even know is in there called Ecclesiastes, and it's very depressing. And the main idea of it is everything is meaningless, which you would not think would be something that would be said from someone who had it all, but actually, it makes absolute sense because he had had it all. He had everything you could think of. And at the end of it, he just says everything is like a vapor. It's like a wind. It's, it's here in one moment, and you chase after it, and it's gone in the next. Whether that was tons of wives, tons of money, tons of status, tons of control, just even military control. And he is a great example of we can pursue all of these things. But at the end of the day, I think we should take the wisdom from the person who had it that it is not Good. In fact, if you've ever like read stories about people who win the lottery, I think like the Mega Millions is like a bazillion dollars right now. I don't know if anybody bought a ticket. I won't judge you if you did. You can raise your hand inside of yourselves. They don't have to show anyone. But I think it's like a billion dollars right now or something crazy like that. Um, and you read these articles about people who win like several hundred million and like their lives just like typically are far worse. I'm not saying 100% of the time, but they win all this money and they only get about half because the government takes about half. And uh, and then they have all this money, and all of a sudden, all their family from the woodworks comes out and starts Facebook messaging you and be like, hey, I heard you won the lottery. Crazy. I'm your family. You should give me some of that. And, and at the end of the day, they become far less happy than they were because they have all these problems now. And I know we think, well, that wouldn't be me if I won the lottery. I'd, I'd do everything right with it, which is what everyone says. And then they win the lottery, and they're sad. But even though, even it's a good example. Even, even like money and wealth, it, cause, it comes with more problems. It's not as simple as you think, and people literally just use you for your money. What if your blank is, for what does it benefit if you get relationship, but you forfeit your soul? And what I mean by relationship is uh, a spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or, or even just a specific friendship, but you're willing to forsake your soul in light of that. I think about um, David, who we, we know is a man after God's own heart, like one of the best in the Bible, other than Jesus, you know, he's great. Uh, but he had several wives and, and still decided to go take another man's wife in the midst of all of that. I had all this power, all this wealth, and was a guy who I would think his heart was deeply after the Lord and was still not satisfied in relationship. His psalms are like filled with that. There's this level of yearning that he wanted that he couldn't fill with women. He couldn't fill with family, especially. He couldn't fill with power and prominence. 
I even think about Jesus' ministry, like we think about his relationships, and we know that his end was great and perfect. But on the other end, the receiving end, his friends were not great to him. If you think about his ministry, it's actually like a, a parabola. For those of you who love math, you never thought I was going to bring that up today, did you? But a parabola goes like this, okay? I'm oversimplifying. His ministry starts off like no one knows him. He grew up in a podunk town of like 500,000 people, no big deal. And he moves to uh, Capernaum and he's working there and there's like 30,000 people. And he starts to grow in influence. People start to recognize him. People start to follow him. Right? He, 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 he feeds thousands of people. He does a couple of those. And he grows and he grows and he grows. And then all of a sudden, he starts to call people to a greater thing. And then people start piecing out. They're like, well, I've been healed or, well, I don't want to do that or I don't want to give up this in my life. And then he ends absolutely alone. All of his disciples had left him, except John was kind of there working behind a tree. And some women that had followed him were there because they're clearly braver than the men. And, but he ends just utterly alone, you know. Even he, he says the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's this, this, this beautiful but terrible symbol of just being utterly alone. And so even relationship for Jesus from, from the receiving end did not, did not fulfill the deepest desires. I love, uh, I love, what about this next one? For what do you benefit if you get comfort and safety or just control? How about that? For what do you benefit if you gain control, but you forfeit your soul? A great story of this is in John 23. Peter, uh, who was one of Jesus' close disciples, just was a total, just, he was a train wreck. And he would constantly say the wrong things and think the wrong things about Jesus and what it meant to follow him. And Jesus has died. He resurrects. Peter had betrayed him three times. Peter feels very terrible. He decides, I'm going to forget this. I'm going to go back fishing. And Jesus comes back and basically restores him and forgives him three times. It's the three times that he had um, denied him. He gives him three more chances to say, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, yes, you know I love you. But at the end of that, that passage, this is the end of John. So it's kind of the end of the story for John's gospel. Jesus says this thing that we often forget. We kind of stop when he says, do you love me the third time? And, uh, and Jesus tells him, hey, feed my sheep. And then he says this. He says, I tell you the solemn truth. When you were young, you tied your clothes around you and you went wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and others will tie you up. They'll bring you where you do not want to go. Now, Jesus had said this to indicate clearly by what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God with. And after he said this, after Jesus said this, he told Peter one last time, follow me. Basically, what's going on here is he's saying, hey, like, you kind of had a lot of freedom uh, for the, for the, since now in your life. But I tell you that if you follow me, you're going to lose a ton of that. You're not going to get to pick where you want to go. You're probably going to be enslaved. You're going to die a death that you don't want to die. And so a lot of what Peter is, is lamenting over betraying Jesus and then is the catalyst for him just becoming this awesome leader in the church. I mean, we're sitting here because of Peter, is that he just relinquished control. And the funny thing is Jesus didn't like, Say, well, who knows? You know, could be, it could be easy. Your life could be easy. It could be hard. I don't know. He's like, no, no, no. Like, you're going you're gonna to be in prison. You're going to go where you don't want to go. You're going to have to do things that are really hard. And you can't use control and comfort as the priority of your life anymore. It's just not going to happen. What about, for what do you benefit if you get happiness, but you forfeit your soul? Happiness is certainly a high priority in a lot of our lives, right? Like, we. Um, you know, oftentimes in relationships, you watch a reality TV show. What is the baseline for relationship? I just, you know, as long as they make you happy, right? And that, well, what happens if they don't? Well, I don't know then. I don't know. I, I, that was my line. As long as they make you happy, right? That's like the baseline. 
And happiness, we know, is contingent on your circumstances, is contingent on your relationship. A better word that we use in the Bible is called joy, and joy is not contingent on circumstances. You can have joy sitting in a jail cell. Typically, you don't have happiness sitting in a jail cell. But the world is plagued by happiness because it's the next endorphin hit, right? It's the next, like, it's just the next exciting thing. And then with social media, everyone, there's always somebody posting something happy. There's always somebody on a beach somewhere that you're not at. If you went on your phone right now, I don't encourage you to do this. It is raining here, and somebody is at the beach somewhere where it is not raining. And you're like, man, that'd be great. And so we pursue happiness. We pursue small doses of it. And if we're not happy, then we're pursuing how to become happy, right? We can't just sit in the pain. Sarah and I were talking about this last night. We were just talking about how we've both lost one of our parents and how every moment in the future feels like it's just robbed of a small bit of happiness because the person that we want to be there is not there. It doesn't mean the whole moment isn't, isn't happy, but it's, I feel like it can't be 100% happy. And you know, I was talking to Sarah and I said, well, you know what's interesting is the Bible talks far more about mourning and grieving than it does about being joyful or happy. And in, in, old, in, in this time, if you had a funeral, you'd be there for sometimes weeks. They would, in fact, they would pay people to, to mourn and wail if you were rich. They, they had professional wailers. How about that on Craigslist? And, and they would just like wail for you for days and days. Now, weddings would take a couple days, right? But funerals would often take weeks. You would mourn them for probably up to 40 days. And we just are like, funeral, let's go like, try to f- just suck out any bit of happiness we can, right? We, we don't want to think about it. We want to move on. But in the Bible, the reality is, is, is a lot of their life was not happy. Now, it doesn't mean they couldn't be joyful. But I, I think about um, Paul. Paul was, was weirdly happy going around and persecuting um, Christians. Uh, his start was as Saul. He had a name before that, Saul, and he like weirdly loved going around and just imprisoning and, and, and accusing Christians because he thought his whole status was based on intellect and being Jewish. And, um, and so he, he found tons of joy in that. And then the Lord met him on the way to Damascus. And then he writes this in 2 Corinthians 11. He gives this like resume of just like terrible things. He says, I've had more severe beatings, faced death many times. Five times I've received... Um, 40 lashes. Three times I was beaten with a rod. One time I received a stoning. Three times I, suff- I suffered shipwreck. You think he'd learn like to not be on a boat anymore. At night and day, uh, I spent adrift in the open sea. I've been on journeys many times in dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers, from countrymen, from Gentiles and dangers from the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in hard work and in toil, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, many times without food, in cold, without enough clothing. Apart from these other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxious concern for all the churches. Who is weak and am I not weak? Who is led into sin and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast about the things that show my weaknesses. Paul is basically giving you this really weird resume. It's the opposite of a resume. It's like a terrible resume. And it's like, look, I have suffered all of these things and I, I have, I have, I have I've experienced hardship. I have experienced the opposite of happiness. And in the midst of this, later he writes in Philippians 4, he's found the secret in the midst of all this of contentment. He says, I have great joy in the Lord because now at last you have again expressed your concern for me. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in any circumstance. I've experienced times of need, times of abundance. In any and every uh, circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment. And the secret is that uh, I am able to be this is where you've probably have heard this verse. I am able to do all things through the one who strengthens me. 
So we get to this point. I'm just kind of I'm drawing this wide net of things that you might be pursuing. I'm sure there's tons more, and I can include tons more. But what is it? What does it benefit me if I gain blank, but I forfeit my soul? And so the the baseline of following Jesus, I actually think is is found in this verse. It's it's Jesus taking up your cross. It's denying yourself, or we call it self denial. And it's not self-denial like I hate myself, I think I'm the worst. It's self-denial that, that I truly am, am moving outside of my self-centeredness to live a life that honors God and, and to see what G, how Jesus did that in his own life. Jesus is basically saying, hey, if you really want to follow me, it's a daily cross-bearing. It's not a one-moment thing. It's not even, I'm not even going to lie to you and say it's going to be super easy all the time, though you might find joy in the midst of that. I love this one quote um, by one of the scholars I was reading. says, a lifetime of discipleship as what we call cross-bearing, bearing a cross, is not just for the sake of suffering. We don't just do it for suffering, be like, oh, I'm suffering, I'm, I'm clearly in love with Jesus. But we do it because of how God's plan will permeate the world, because his plan undermines enslaving power of coercion and, and the burden of sin, in, in, and his way is a daily refusal to engage in that. It's a daily refusal of not using people or trying to pursue power for the sake of yourself or to build yourself a kingdom or to fill in a blank with something that is other than Jesus. And so the next question that I think comes from that, if you're like thinking about that and you're, maybe you've been a Christian, maybe you haven't, and you're like, yeah, there's probably something I'd fill in that blank that is in my life right now. Why do I want to change that, right? Why do I want to flip that? I was meeting with someone a couple of days ago who asked that question, like, why all of this? Like, why do it? Why does it matter? And that question, I was like, I was like, that's actually a really great question because if you're looking from the outside at a church or Christians, it is very confusing. You're like, why are you doing all of this? And, you know, the answer is not just to be a good person. So what is the why? And this is where, if you're in your Bibles at Luke 15, we're going to read this story, one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible in Luke 15. It starts in verse 11. Uh, your Bible might say the prodigal son. My version says the compassionate father. Both are very important in this story. Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees and, 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 and Jews who are arguing with him, and he says this in verse 11. Jesus says, he's telling them a story. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of my estate that will belong to me. Now, if we just stop right there for right now. In this culture, uh, you were always pretty much doing inheritance when you died. The first son would receive like anywhere from 30 to 40%. And then it was like sequential from, because you typically had more than one or two sons. But in this case, the younger son is basically saying in this term, it's a very honor culture, saying, hey, I wish you were dead. Give me my money now. Uh, which is not a good approach if you're trying to have a good relationship with your parents. Um, but this is Jesus just kind of holding up this, hey, um, this is you. Like, you, you think that you are God. You've played God in your own heart, in your own mind. You've, you've grabbed things and desired things that, that are not yours to, to want or even that you maybe think you've created or deserved. It's a good way of saying we choose God's creation over himself. We say, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. And that's what this, 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 this younger son is saying. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. And what's even funny is he's acting as though he deserves it, right? Like, this is an unearned inheritance, the, the father has not died yet, and the father doesn't have to give it to him. But he's like, no, 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 like, I deserve that, right? How often do we just think we deserve things, right, just because we're here and we exist and we worked hard? We're like, I deserve that. And so he's telling the father, I don't like you. I like your stuff. I hope you're dead. I like my unearned inheritance. And so what does the father do? He honors his request. Because, you know, you can't force or coerce relationship. So he 
honors him and he gives him his unearned inheritance and he gives it to his son forsaking the family name for what this this guy thought would be the best and so it says in the next verse he divided his assets between them and after a few days the younger son gathered together all that he had and left on a journey to Las Vegas. I'm just kidding. I used that last week, so that would be funny again. I, Las Vegas is not the worst place ever, but to a foreign country, a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle. Wild lifestyle, you can fill in the blank here, wealth, prominence, happiness, probably relationship, right, all these things. And then after he had spent everything, a severe famine. Oh, man, good luck. Uh, illusion of control, right? Like immediately thought, it'll be fine. I'll spend all this. And then basically a recession hits, for lack of better terms, a famine. And now he's out of money and he's in a severe famine. It took place in that country and he began to be in need. So what does he do? He went and worked for one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to eat the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. After losing everything, the inheritance that he had squandered through a just wild set of parties, uh, he still tries to do it on his own for a while. He doesn't think, man, maybe I should go back to my father. You know what? I will take the lowest job because there's too much pride in me to go back to my father, right? Like I've, he would never take me back. I've, I've spent all this money on terrible things. So I'm going to go literally take care of pigs and wish that I could eat what the pigs were eating, which, and uh, I think we would describe that in modern terms as rock bottom. Um, I don't know if there's a worse place to be. I'm sure there could be, but it's one of the worst. And he's wishing he could eat the food the pigs are eating. And and you just just think about that for a while. Like, you know, maybe you've known people. Maybe you're in this season where you're like, I kind of feel like I'm a rock bottom. Maybe I've been there. How often, though, even at we think we're at rock bottom and we still want to conjure up a sense of pride in ourselves. Like, no, I can do it. I can do it. I just need to try harder. I just need to do these things. I'm just going to go work for this guy and I'll work my way up or whatever, right? And he'd rather work in a pig Stye, then go back to a father who loved him radically because it's his sense of pride. I can't do that. I don't want to give up myself. I don't want to deny myself or admit that I don't have it all together. But after a while, verse 17, he does hit his rock bottom. When he came to his senses, who knows how long that was, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have food enough to spare? But here I am dying from hunger. I will get up, to, I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so treat me like one of your hired workers. Once again, the son still is living a lie that he is still not deserving to be a son because of what he had did. So at best, I'll be a hired worker because at least I know those guys were treated better than I currently am. And he thinks, I'll, I will work my way back into my father as a servant. Surely I'll never be a son again, and that will never happen. But I'm at the point, I'm at rock bottom, and I have no choice. I gotta, I'm going to go back. And so what does he do? He, uh, he runs. He got up, and he goes to his father in verse 20. But while he was still a long way from home, his father saw him, and his heart went out to him. There's this beautiful verse where Jesus um, he uses this word splachnomiza in a different uh, story where it basically means that his heart, like his, his gut hurt because of the, the, the depravity of humanity. Like his compassion for them caused him to literally feel sick. I think about it in the same writing here. His heart went out to him. The father felt just an extreme level of compassion. And what does he do? He runs out from his house, doesn't wait for him to come to him. He, ran, he runs and he hugs his son and he kisses him. Father doesn't stand at the porch, like tapping his foot, like you're late, you know with anger or judgment. 
He doesn't listen to his excuses or even take an apology, right? He doesn't even let him talk. He just immediately embraces him as his son. And, and I, I think about, like, um, Tim Keller has talked about this story in great detail, and he talks about how even culturally, like, you know, his father was probably wearing, like, some pretty nice clothing to just run out in the field, like, and hug his dirty, gross son. It would be, like, a cultural no-no. And for us, we don't think necessarily anything of that. Um, but to run out and to just be like, everything I have in my life right now is, is meaningless. I want to go hug my son is a pretty wild, bold thing to do. And he runs the whole way there. And before the, the son even says anything, he just hugs him and he kisses him. And this is how I think this moment, I'll explain it a little bit more, but this is the moment where we get to where we are, where it's like, why do we want to follow Jesus? Because we have a God who did this for us. And what's so radical about this is the son doesn't even get a word out, which I think is just fascinating. How often um, have you maybe been in a church service or something where they want you to like say this prayer, right? And, right? and there's like this formula and you say this thing and then Jesus accepts you. And it's like, here, the father just knew. It was the smallest inclination. It was the smallest turning. And we call that repentance, right? It's like, I'm going this way. Repentance to turn 180, to turn around and to go the opposite way. And the son's repentance was coming back. And even in the smallest bit of that, the father just runs the whole way there. It's the smallest act of the son just being like, man, maybe the father will even let me be a slave in his house. And the father runs the whole rest of the way to him. And then what's really funny that most people don't, under, don't get is the son, and I think a lot of you have felt this, have a hard time comprehending this unconditional love. The father hugs us in our lives. We feel like there's no way that this is free. There's no way that, that, I, that I don't have to do something to earn this or, or give back in some way, like it's some sort of charitable giving. And we know that, that he's felt this because the next line, the son then says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. After he had just been hugged and, right, and embraced by his father, his father came running, he still doesn't believe that he's a son. He still is like, this can't, this can't be right. Like, this would not make sense. Clearly, this is not how this works in this culture. I had told you I don't want to be your son. I don't want to be in your family anymore. And he's like, so some of you, I think, have, have been in the, the, the tension of this love and grace, and you have a hard time accepting it because you're just like, there's no way, there's no way that I don't have to do something. There's no way that it's absolutely free. And you're doing this. You're like, yeah, yeah, I, I get that. But I still like want to live this kind of life where I, I feel guilty all the time if I don't do the right things, right? Or, or I, I feel like, okay, I, I need to get my life together then. Like, I just need to stop doing all these things. And if I don't, then I'm a failure and God's angry at me. And, and, and what does the father say in response to this? He doesn't say anything. He just ignores the lies, which are from the devil, that I'm not worthy to be called a son. He doesn't even acknowledge the statement. What does he do in verse 22? The father says to his slaves, hurry, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. The father just completely ignores the devil's lies. And he calls him a son to his slaves, just like, hey, I don't think you realize it. Like, you're, you're my son. Like, let me just reiterate this by killing the fattened calf that we've never killed because it's a super special occasion. Let me just show you that. And then what he does, he gives him a robe, which is a sign of, of value. And then he gives him a ring. And there a time in this culture, if you wore a ring, it was your family's signet ring if you were wealthy. And that was your way of, like, kind of like your driver's license, but of a way of saying, hey, I'm a part of this family. It was a beautiful illustration of, hey, you're, you're back in the family. 
And I just, I love this story because I think it just breaks it down so simply that the Father's love is truly for us, no matter how far we've gone. And even though we ourselves are our biggest problem most times, we don't believe it's truly unconditional. We think we can do it on our own. We, we still try to pursue these things, right? Whether it's the illusion of control or the wealth or the whatever it may be. And at the end of this story, all it takes is this small inclination to think, you know what? I think I need to go back home. And what he thought he would receive was nothing compared to what the Father gave him. And so out of this compassion, this is why following Jesus is worth it. We ask the question, why do we do this? People from the outside think you're crazy. We do it because we were that son. And we, we had this experience that we thought we knew better than God, and we, we played God. And in, in all honesty, it, it ends badly, and it should, be, it should end far more far badly. The father could have been like, nah, like you, like I have the right to kill you because you told me you wanted me to die. And in that law, the, the, a father could kill his son for disobedience. So it's like, I have the right to kill you, and I'm not going to do that. And so I think that this self-denial aspect is, is at the root of it because of this compassion. It's not self-denial for the sake of obedience. It's self-denial out of compassion that God gives us. I have this quote that I think puts it just beautifully because I think we, we wrestle with this. Okay, if it's God's compassionate, then I can just do whatever I want, right? Like I can, God will forgive me, right? He's like a genie. And uh, this author, Henry Nouwen, puts it this way. He says, God's love for us existed before we were born and will exist after we have died. God's love is from eternity to eternity and is not bound by any event or circumstance. Does that mean that God does not care what we say or do? No, because God's love wouldn't be real if God didn't care. To love without condition does not mean to love without concern. God desires to enter into relationship with us and wants us to love God in return. God loves us without conditions, but does not approve of every human behavior. God's unconditional love means that God continues to love us. Even when we say or think evil things, you name it, God continues to wait for us just as his father did. As a loving parent who waits for the return of their lost child, God never gives up loving us even when God is saddened by what we do or the choices that we make. And if that's you today, I just want to encourage you that, that God is not sitting there tapping his foot on the stairwell angry at you, that he is, his, he is ready to run fully to you. If you just would turn in, in, in an act of repentance towards him. Paul says this uh, last thing, and I want to invite the band up. We're going to close. Paul says this last thing in Romans 6, and he's talking about uh, self-denial. He says, Basically, he's, he's, he's conflicted because people are saying, well, what about sin then? What, can we just keep going on sinning if Jesus' love saves us or whatever it may be? And he says, what shall we say then? Do we remain in sin so that grace may increase? Meaning, can we just keep taking advantage of this? And he says, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? Meaning, in order to partake in the baptism of Jesus, we have to partake in his death. He says, therefore, we have been buried with him through death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we are raised so that we might live a new life. For if we become united with him in his death, we also certainly will become united with him in his resurrection. We know that our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin would no longer dominate us. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Would you consider the life that you have, you can have in Jesus, that there is, there is this act of dying to self as Christ died. He was, he was the ultimate act of self-denial, literally till the point of death, 
could have totally, I mean, at one point the Roman last minute is like, hey, you know, you could just get yourself down off the cross or whatever, right? You could do that. Even up to the last minute, he's being tempted with using, using his power, and he, he doesn't. He denies himself, and so we partake in the same denial so that we might become alive in Christ. And so as we transition into a time, we have one more song, and we always offer um, communion or the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Jerry is going to be passing these out to everyone if you want one, so you don't have to get up. Um, but to close, the, the Lord's Supper is why we culminate each Sunday because the Lord's Supper is a tangible reminder of this sacrifice. There's nothing crazy about it. The, it is gluten-free bread and juice. There's nothing special about those things, but we take them as a symbol and a reminder that the, the sacrifice that Jesus gave to us is something that we need. We do it weekly, but really daily, every hour, every minute, that we are, we are continually reminding ourselves of being the wayward son who was brought back to the Father. And so Jesus' sacrifice makes that possible, that if we are able to... Um, acknowledge our sin and repent of it, that he gives us life, full life in Christ. And so if you'd like, you can take that. If you're not comfortable, that's totally okay, but uh, it's a reminder. And what I love about doing it together and the reason why we do it together is that if you look around, some people you know, maybe you don't know anyone, everybody here that, that is following Jesus is taking that, saying, hey, we're all on the same page here. We're all broken and we're all, we've all been that son. And we're all going to remind ourselves of this, that this is what bonds us together through worship and through teaching and through the Bible is that Jesus died for our sins and that through that we're able to receive life. So we're going to give you a minute or so just to take that. If you want to pray, if you want to reflect, whatever you'd like to do. Uh, and then we're going to close in uh, one more song and uh, Nick will guide us through that. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.